Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce our next episode is my producer, Sari Soffer. Hi, Sari. Hi, I'm super excited to have this conversation. So we have on the show today, Mary Robertson and Samantha Stark, who are the showrunner and director, respectively, of the New York Times documentary, Framing Britney Spears, which is all anyone's talking about if you're in my circles or on my Twitter feed these days. (laughs) Yeah, this is so great because it's such a timely conversation to Mm -hmm. have. And I watched it uh, last week. And I mean, actually breathtaking to see how she was treated by people who are very much still figures in the media and entertainment. Yeah. You know, I grew up with Britney Spears and I can't believe that I was also growing up with some of the messages that they were sending her. And obviously I was then internalizing as a kid. It really brought that up for me for sure. Yeah. The film, if people haven't seen it, goes through her life chronologically from Team pop stardom to of her eventual mental health struggles, custody battles, and now this weird conservatorship that she's been under for a while where her father controls all of her financial, medical, and most of her personal decisions. It's like shocking. Shocking. But I want to pause on that and we'll get more details uh, with Mary and Samantha since they're the experts. But basically, since 2008, after Britney was hospitalized for some mental health issues that year, a judge ruled that Britney wasn't fit to make her own decisions about her career and finances and granted control to her father, which is called a conservatorship. The details of why are confidential and sealed in court documents, but she's been in this legal battle ever since. And the new news out in November a few months ago was that Brittany came out and said that she wanted her father removed as conservator because she said she's scared of him. Yeah. And said that that she refused to perform so long as Mm -hmm. he is in control of her conservatorship. Right, right. Yeah, that she's not performing until he's taken off. But uh, yeah, the documentary paints her father as this guy that like wasn't around much when she was a kid. Um, They said he had alcohol problems. He struggled to hold a job and eventually filed for bankruptcy. And in the documentary, one of the people who knew Brittany in her early days said that the only thing that she remembers about him was that he said, my daughter's going to be so rich, she's going to buy me a boat. And now the irony is that he can buy himself a boat, but it's with Brittany's money because he's the one that controls all of her money. It's absolutely insane. And that's like the document. It's all about people trying to control her. Yeah, she had this really great response to a reporter early on in her career when she was asked how she keeps control when she's part of such a huge enterprise. I think that was the idea, and I wanted to play that. That's why I am where I am today is because I do have control, you know? And you just you just control what you do. You know, you have to. Otherwise, you get sucked in by people that are not necessary. Yes, Brittany. Exactly. Total foreshadowing. And this, of course, is when she had success was when she had more control. Yeah, it's made me think a lot about agency and like whether or not things have gotten better for women and girls in the spotlight. Like I think of Billie Eilish, who only wears baggy clothing because she doesn't want people commenting on her body. Or, you know, Ariana Grande, who was much like Britney. She started out as a Disney star. And then she was criticized when she grew up and started dressing more like a woman. Um, She's also someone who's been defined by her boyfriends and is constantly trying to push up against that through her music. Hence, thank you, next. 
And it's just like hindsight is obviously 2020. And I think we're starting to realize what we've done to our past stars. You know, like Prince Harry came out blaming the paparazzi and the media on what happened to Princess Diana. And we like all see, you know, how coverage of Anna Nicole Smith and her sexuality and her abilities as a mother took a toll on her mental health and potentially caused her death. But I think a lot of this is still going on. And we need to take this moment to look at how we're treating women currently in the spotlight. Yeah, I read a tweet by a journalist, Aaron Bibba, who called attention to how we're treating Claudia Conway, who was the young teenage daughter of George and Kellyanne Conway, you know, who are political figures. She's put herself out there quite a bit, arguing with her family in public. And we forget, like, she is a child. She's 16 years old. Yeah. So I'm super excited to talk to Mary and Samantha, but I wonder if they, in looking at this, if Mary and Samantha thinks that things have gotten better, if they're surprised by the re- some of the reaction we've seen from other celebrities who came up in the uh, 90s and the early 2000s, and, you know, where they think this conversation is going to take us. Yeah, I can't wait. Let's do it. I need me. Mary Robertson and Samantha Stark, thank you for coming on. Just something about her. I feel like I have been preparing for this conversation for my entire life. Yes. (laughs) Right? And congratulations on the huge success, first of all. How did this start? How did this come about? I mean, are you Britney fans? Maybe I could start and then pass the proverbial mic to Samantha. So Samantha, of course, is the visionary and director who helmed this film. I'm an executive producer or showrunner. And what that means as it relates to the conception of the project was that we spend time sitting around a virtual table, throwing ideas against a wall. And many months ago, one of our colleagues, the brilliant Liz Day, suggested we consider her pitch was, let's do OJ Made in America, but for Britney Spears. But that makes sense. You sort of like get it immediately. Yeah, I, I I think one of the brilliant parts of the OJ Made in America series was that it began its storytelling so many years before the OJ Simpson trial. It provided the viewer with just a tremendous amount of context. So you understood the forces that were coursing through culture at the time of the trial. And I think it created real you know, sympathy and empathy for parties that you might not have understood otherwise. So when Liz said, OJ made in America, but for Brittany, I thought, well, that's what this would be too, right? (laughs) This would be the film Mm -hmm. that starts at the beginning and that allows the viewer to connect the dots in Brittany's life, to really understand the forces that were swirling around her throughout the years when she was ascending and the forces that were swirling around her throughout the years when she was, um, one might say, unraveling publicly and how those forces may or may not have contributed to, you know, the sort of public expressions that we saw emerge from her. I will say that I think it's very important to have women at the table where the decisions are made about what is funded and what we pursue and what we develop. And I think, you know, we do have women at our table. And I think that that meant in part that there wasn't a tendency to dismiss this story as perhaps trivial or a bonbon or a confection. I think there was this sense that if we dug into this, that it would merit uh, the dig, if you will. Yeah. 
I think we were all really quickly struck by the energy of her fan base and the understanding that many of the fans were themselves reflecting upon their complicity in consuming Britney, mm-hmm. you know, at perhaps her lowest points. And we saw that there was profundity in that. Dear Britney. Dear Britney. Dear Britney. I'm so nervous. I'm like sweating. Your whole situation is consuming me now. I can't believe that it's just been this long and I, I didn't know. And that's where I'll just pass this over to Samantha because once the film was greenlit, Samantha came on and sort of infused it with her vision. Well, that's Samantha. My my last question was going to be, but now I'll put it in along with my first question was the male gaze versus the female gaze in uh, making a film like this. I mean, because I've already seen you talk about how you were a teenager during the Britney years, and Britney was sort of shaped by you know, mostly men in their 30s, 40s, 50s, whether they were managing her or talking about her. You know, now we have a film that is made, directed, produced by women about her. Mary kind of brought that up about how important it was to have female at the table. So I just wanted to, you know, as you answer this first question, have that consideration be part of it. I mean, I think I'm a perfect example because I only knew what Britney was through this male gaze because that was what was given to us over and over and over again. Almost the same age as her. And I remember, you know, when she first came out, when we were both in high school and just thinking like in in my head for some reason, and I think it's from the media I consumed, she was like too straight for me and too, you know, like perfect person for me. And, And I remember like rejecting the idea of her, like for some reason. And when I was digging into actually her real story and talking to people who actually knew her, I found out that I was totally wrong about her, that she was a rebel her whole career from the time she was a teenager, that she was a feminist, and that then I wanted to know, wait, why did I have these ideas about her? And I also, so I started research from the beginning, then like reading and watching everything that I could find that was made about her, and so much of it was made by men. And there was this idea that she was this puppet who you know, didn't really have her own personality, didn't really contribute creatively to her own work and was just, you know, taken advantage of by man after man after man. And it just felt wrong. And part of the reason it's called Framing Britney Spears is, you know, we've consumed her a lot in still photographs in the photograph of her, the still frame of her shaving her head or her, you know, holding up that umbrella. And we wanted to pull out and see what was outside those still frames that it feels like maybe she you could say she was trapped in by so many people. And now we have her Instagram where she's trying to show us who she is in a frame. And and when you pull out from that, you realize there was so much more going on, um, particularly that while this was happening, she was going through a custody battle and how important it was for her to be a mother. And so many people made fun of that. And I think now people are starting to say, like women, a lot of women who are mothers are starting to come out and be like, wait a minute, if I was going through a custody battle and, and I couldn't see my kids, I would act differently also. And, and so I think a lot of the unfairness of that is being recognized through the gaze of women or outsiders outside the main culture back then. I often think about Britney's first music video in which she appears dressed in a schoolgirl uniform yeah. with her midriff exposed. And I think that you could do a six-hour film on that video and the response of the culture to it alone. 
there's so much to unpack there. And, you know, Samantha will tell you that in her reporting, it came out that the choice, I believe the choice to, you know, tie her top and reveal her midriff was Brittany's choice. And that, right. you know, I think there's one thread to pull out, which is to say, like, let's look at her agency in this moment. She may have been a teenager. You know, she may have been younger than 18 at this moment. She nonetheless wanted to put herself out there as someone who was both girl and woman in ways, right? She wanted to put herself out there. As most female teenagers do, right? Totally. I mean, she's absorbing all the same lessons about what we value in the world with women as we are, right? Totally. you know, it's it's power, but it's also I mean, it's all there, right? There's like power in showing your midriff. There's exploitation in showing your midriff. But it was her choice. Totally. And then we watch the reaction to that expression and we see young girls identify with her and revere her. We see older men and younger men leer, if you will, and women, too, you know, in which they're aroused by her presentation. And then we also see them perhaps attack her for the arousal that they're feeling or attack her for Mm -hmm. the expression of her sexuality. We see them blame her for having agency in it. And we see them also deny her agency in it. So like I said, I think that, you know, we could do six hours on that alone. So she's not the first woman to be treated this way, particularly in the nineties, there was women that were treated, you know, similarly by the media and since then, right? Lindsay Lohan, Anna Nicole Smith, Princess Diana, Nita Hill, Tanya Harding. And you all spent a little bit of time on Monica Lewinsky. I mean, the thing that I find fascinating about Britney Spears' arrival at this moment is that she comes in the midst of the Clinton-Lewinsky scandal. President Clinton had an affair. Sexual relationship with a former White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. And it's this really charged moment in the country where we are talking about sex in a way that we had never been talking about sex or hadn't been for a long time. Monica, I don't know if Samantha knows this, Mary may know this. Um, She was my intern in the White House and, you know, I was sort of a bystander to what happened to her. And... In the film, you talk a little bit about Monica and how the sort of the notion of her and Brittany sort of being treated the same way. I do remember in real time that happening, but I'm foggy. Why was it important that you specifically bring Monica into this? I think context and surrounding circumstances were always so important to us. And our desire as journalists and storytellers was always to sort of broaden our perspective so that we were never looking at Brittany in isolation, but we were looking at Brittany in relationship to the forces that were swarming around her. And, you know, our journalism sort of led us to the conclusion that we could not look at Brittany without looking at Monica. I think that there are certainly other women of the time that we could have spent more time on as well. And There's a six-hour version of this film. (laughs) Is there literally a six-hour version of this film? No. (laughs) I, I, you know, if someone wants to pay us to make the six-hour version of it, we probably could. (laughs) Yeah, probably do that. So, yes. So, it it did become important to us to include cultural context, and Monica Lewinsky came to mind for all of us, certainly. And I think much in the way that we were, frankly, shocked in revisiting some of the coverage that Brittany received during her sort of ascendant times and descendant times, I think that we were equally shocked by looking at the coverage that we were reviewing surrounding Monica. There's a clip in the film in which 
uh, Jay Leno references Monica Lewinsky and, you know, essentially uses a slur <laughs> to describe her. It's really, I think, it's noteworthy. See, that brings up the age-old question for guys. Who do you watch? The nice girl? The pretty girl you can take home to mom? Or the cheap, slender girl you know puts out, everybody goes for Monica! But perhaps what's more noteworthy is that that sort of quality of discourse was commonplace. We absorbed it so casually. People keep talking about the film in reference to casual misogyny, the casual misogyny of the time. And I think that that's important, right? Something becomes casual when it's so omnipresent that we don't talk about it, right? That it's just in the environment and the air that surrounds us. And there very much was this sense that that was true with Monica. It was true with Brittany. Not only do you not even remark upon it, you don't even notice it, right? Or you just accept it. From my vantage point, um, I remember seeing the 2007 video of Brittany where she shaves her head and then attacks the car. And I just thought, you know, I just saw somebody that was so broken. That was a very familiar sight to me, having seen Monica, having seen my friend Elizabeth Edwards, who at the same time was going through a really difficult time, that kind of rage, powerlessness get revealed in that way. I feel like coming out of this 20 years on, we're much more aware and movies like this help us become more aware of like all of what was coming at all of those women. Do you think it's better now? It's not casual, but it's still coded. Ooh, I've been thinking we, a lot about this. <laughs> yeah. I, the reaction to the film has been deeply moving. The film has engaged the audience in this way that we didn't dream was possible. And we're watching portions of our culture in response to the film say, not only do I think Diane Sawyer shouldn't have asked that question or approached the conversation in that way, not only should Matt Lauer not have approached the conversation in that way, but maybe I was wrong to laugh at those jokes. We're listening to people say, I'm sorry. Maybe I was complicit and I'm sorry. And that is so moving. We have cried. (laughs) There have been tears. And you know, and there has been a discussion of casual misogyny. There's been a conversation that's been sort of stimulated around tabloid culture and misogyny and mental health awareness. And all of that is so tremendous. I think that the next stage for us, though, in the conversation around this film, I'd hope is about whether or not that misogyny that we're able to see so clearly is occurring in the 90s and the early aughts is in fact still with us. And I think It's good to ask ourselves the question, has it died? Did Me Too kill it? Has it diminished or has it transformed into other shapes and moved onto other platforms? And we don't have late night talk show (laughs) hosts saying the same thing. We don't have um, Us Weekly using Bimbo or the New York Post putting Bimbo on the cover. But what is happening on the Reddit forums and what is happening on TikTok? What's the quality of the discourse and the language that we're using and the labels that we're attaching? Samantha, what what do you think about this? I mean, you know, you see it and it it takes shapes in other ways. I think that's really smart, Mary. But also, you know, in popular culture, I still feel like, you know, this is a big point that Sari brings up. It's like, it's still there. You see it in the coverage of like Billie Eilish. You see it in other emerging female stars. But how do you think about it? Something that I've been thinking about a lot is this idea that when... Kim Kaiman, who's we interview in the piece, she was Britney's marketing director at Jive Records. So she helped create Britney's image when she first came in when she was a teenager. And the way she 
saw Brittany was this strong, confident person. And she's like, we're going to sell her to 12 and 13 year olds as your best friend who you look up to, but at the end of the day has the same hopes and dreams as you do. Right. So she was sold as this is a relatable person who like you should see yourself in. And then like those same people who saw themselves in her and this whole young generation grew up watching that misogyny happen to her, right? Like I'm thinking a lot about how it affected me watching another 16-year-old be treated like that and everybody accepting it so casually. Like how did that affect my development and how did it affect the people around me to see that that's how we treat people? It certainly is a paradox, isn't it? the way she works and, and the way she dresses. She doesn't seem that innocent. Everyone's talking about it. Why? Well, your breasts. <laughs> I did interviews um, with Entertainment Weekly and some of those other kind of like entertainment places. And I was so nervous about it before because I was like, you know, I saw such bad coverage of Britney from this outlet. Like, I, I don't trust them. Then I went in and the person interviewing me was a woman my age who wanted to talk about it super seriously and was like outraged by the coverage. So right. The storytellers change and it matters. Yeah, exactly. I think that, you know, by watching all this all happen, especially if it's like, this is someone like me that this happened to maybe by now we're saying we're not going to do that anymore. We shouldn't treat people like that. That's not everybody because there's a lot of internet, you know, this exact same thing with a lot of misogynistic comments everywhere. But I do think there's a whole generation who saw that happen to Brittany who was like, we're not doing that to anybody. Speaking of coded stuff, I mean, Diane Sawyer, you know, that the universe is terrible and particularly the whole notion about like, but you broke Justin Timberlake's heart. I have to ask a couple of things about Justin. Okay, of course. He has gone on television. And pretty much said, you broke his heart. You did something that caused him so much pain, so much suffering. What did you do? <clears throat> I was upset. I was upset for a while. We both, I think we're both really young and it was kind of waiting to happen. And I will always Love him. He'll always have a special place in my heart. He is such a great person. But you said, I've only slept with one person in my whole life, two years into my relationship with Justin. And yet he's, he's left the impression that, that you weren't faithful, that you betrayed the relationship. I think everyone has a side to their story. But it does sort of concern me that everybody immediately zeroes it on Diane Sawyer. Me too. Right. You know, it's like, what's at the root of that? The root of that is you're saying that, well, we expect Jay Leno and Justin Timberlake and Matt Lauer and Ed McMahon to be sexist and misogynistic. And like, we're going to tolerate that to agree. But in a woman, yeah, that, that was a really bad interview. But Diane Sawyer is the first one we talk about. Really? I actually agree with you about that. It's like this narrative of pitting women against each other right away. Yeah. Like they did it, but she did it. Like, let's talk about how women are taking other women down. How women are taking other women down, which I hate. But then also what you're really saying is we expect this in men and we tolerate it in men and it's okay for men to do it. It's not okay for women to do it. Totally. 
And that was the, I mean, that was the culture around there at the time, right? I'm sure Diane Sawyer was getting so many people wanting her to ask those questions because that's how everyone was talking about her back then. Yeah. And that's how I've talked to one really high profile woman who, it's not Hillary, but she said, you know, as a powerful woman, don't do interviews with, with women because women always want to prove to men that they can take a woman down. That's horrible. So that was just a couple of years ago. So we're still working on this. <laughs> One thing that also struck me about, you know, in watching, but in watching the Diane Sawyer interview and watching the Matt Lauer interview is how Brittany reacts to it, which I feel is like all of us as well, because it's like the only gravitational force she has in the world is to please people, right? You know, just, just trying to read like where she's supposed to go to the point where finally she breaks down in frustration and cries. What did you all see when you watched her react to the kinds of questions that she got in these interviews? There was one choice that Sam made in the edit that I keep thinking about, which was about how much of Brittany crying and breaking down on camera we were going to include. Oh, interesting. I think this is what you're referring to. It felt like we only wanted to use like what was absolutely necessary because it felt like people wanted to make her break down all the time. There's this whole yes pattern that went through, you know, from the smallest outlets to the largest ones of let's confront Brittany with these horrible tabloids about her and then like have her defend herself against them. So we had to pick and choose what to include because you could watch hours and hours and hours of people trying to make Brittany cry. And then, you know, those are the most, the heightened moments. And so if we keep showing them, all you see is a woman who's crying. You never actually get to hear her speak for herself. Mm -hmm. She cries three times in the piece, which is a lot of crying for her, but it did feel like there was pointed reasons to show each of those times. And we also wanted to make sure we included her defending herself. So one thing she says to Diane Sawyer is when Diane is saying you're, you know, there's so many people saying you're a bad influence on children. Brittany says, I'm not here to, you know, babysit her kids. Right. Which is so, I mean, she was so young to think of that. Like, I wouldn't have thought of that, I don't think. And it's such a great response. It's such a powerful response. But I think people were just um, not listening to her then. That's a good place to take a break. After these advertisements, we'll talk about how Britney Spears has been under a conservatorship for the past 13 years. Samantha, Mary, I want to ask you more about the details because there are some really shocking rules that she has to abide by. But first, a quick break from this episode of Just Something About Her with Mary Robertson and Samantha Stark. I wasn't under the restraints that I'm under right now, you know, with all the lawyers and doctors and people analyzing me every day and all that kind of stuff. Like, if that wasn't there, I'd feel so liberated and feel like myself. When I tell them the way I feel, it's like they hear me, but they're really not listening. They're hearing what they want to hear. They're not really listening to what I'm telling them. It's like, it's bad. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. And that was Britney Spears in an MTV documentary from 2008 called Britney for the Record. 
It was made during the first year of her conservatorship, where her father has legal control over all her financial and many of her personal decisions. We're here with Mary Robertson and Samantha Stark. They are the showrunner and director of Framing Britney Spears, a documentary that also ultimately focuses on this legal bind between Britney and her father. Samantha, why don't you start? Can you explain what's going on here? I think, you know, a lot of people were really surprised to even learn that Britney was in a conservatorship. Yeah, I was. Right. And and she's been in it for 13 years while performing and having a comeback. You know, women watch this movie now and, they've, and they're like outraged for Britney, but also some part of us feels that ourselves have been controlled, muzzled, erased. Those are the emotions that came up for me as I'm considering her conservatorship. So please explain the conservatorship because, I mean, does it come with a chastity belt? Because it seems to have so much control over her. I mean, I saw something about receipts for food that she's purchasing. So just explain. Can you explain it? Okay. So a conservatorship is this unique legal arrangement where a person is deemed incapable of making decisions in their own best interest. And so someone else is put in that place to make those decisions for them legally. So this is a court-sanctioned conservatorship. There's a conservatorship of the person, which is a person who's, you know, entrusted with making medical decisions for you, you know, deciding who can come visit you, where you live, in her case, that she can have security 24-7 around her, really basic day-to-day decisions. And then a conservatorship of your estate is someone who has control over all of your money and every business investment you're in. In Brittany's case, they can also sign contracts for her and turn into business deals for her. She cannot sign her own name on a business contract and she can't sign her own name on a check. She can't sign her own name on a check. Yeah, I believe so. So basically what you're talking about is in the court records, they have to file in detail every penny she spends. So we found these court records where it's like five seventy-five at Starbucks, forty-five dollars at Target, five dollars on flowers, or this every single thing she spends is categorized and approved and has to be submitted to the court. You know, when you look at that, it feels really condescending and invasive to see what she spends at Target. It's enraging. And surprising in that she has made millions of dollars, you know, since she's been under the conservatorship. Two months after the conservatorship started, she was a guest star on How I Met Your Mother. Um, the director of that credits her with like launching that TV show. She was had a recorded album. She's toured. She was a judge on The X Factor. She was the headliner of one of the most successful Vegas shows in history, residencies in history. And so there's a big contrast between somebody who can do all that and somebody mm-hmm. who you would think would need those protections of, you know, you can't make decisions in your own best interest. So that's the central mystery of the film. And also, I think why people are so confused and interested and, like you said, outraged by the conservatorship, because it just feels like it doesn't add up. And, you know, we know it's court sanctioned. So there there it is through the court somehow, but all the records are sealed. So we don't know how. And the the last thing I'll say is that a conservatorship is most often used for um, the elderly and people with Alzheimer's usually. So when I ask people, okay, so explain to me like best case scenario how this system works. It's kind of like say your your mother has Alzheimer's 
and you know a stranger from down the street has been visiting her right. and is convincing her to sign over her estate mm-hmm. to the neighbor. And so you don't want that to happen. So you can file for this protection. And then you're the one who basically legally is in charge of making all your mother's decisions. And you're supposed to make them as if your mother would make them. But I would say it's a unique, probably the only person who has made millions of dollars as a pop star while being under a conservatorship. I know that they took some action yesterday. The court did related to her father's involvement. For a minor victory yesterday, her father will no longer have 100% control of the conservatorship. So I think there's a, a lot of misleading headlines about what happened, actually. Okay. You know, there's all this Britney You don't won. say. That's shocking. Yeah. <laughs> misleading headlines about Britney. Yeah, I think it's maybe by people who are covering conservatorships for the first time because of this and haven't seen, like, what has happened before. Because it's often, I mean, it's in, like, the pop media section of, of all the things. But, you know, the headline we're seeing is Britney wins that her father can't delegate anymore and, you know, big win for Britney. And that is just not accurate because what actually happened was, you know, in November, which is part of the film, Britney's court-appointed attorney, court-appointed because she, in her position, she wasn't deemed capable of choosing her own attorney. During the November 10th hearing, he asked for Jamie Spears to be temporarily suspended as her sole conservator and added S for Bessemer Trust, this fiduciary company who does this professionally, to take over for Jamie. So there would still be a conservatorship. It would just be passing the baton to a professional. The judge in that hearing ruled that she would not temporarily suspend Jamie, but she did appoint Bessemer Trust as a co-conservator. So now, three months later... Jamie's lawyer, Vivian Thorin, who we have in the piece, actually, and he has other lawyers as well, had filed asking for Jamie to have the power to delegate investment powers to Bessemer Trust, which is really confusing. It doesn't really make sense. We thought that the judge would just like deny that anyway. But basically, she said, you can't do that because you're co-conservators. Like, If you were delegating the power, you wouldn't be co-conservators. So I stand by my statement in November, basically. But this takes so long because they still haven't decided how they're going to work together. So it's this legal system that goes on and on and on and on. It's, it just felt like yesterday was a technicality and like this minutia that they were arguing over. And as long as that keeps going, Brittany's in the same situation and Brittany is paying everyone, all the legal people in that room through her estate. That's a quirk of the conservatorship oh my system. God. So Brittany's paying her own lawyer. She hired new litigators. So she's paying them, but she's also paying her father's lawyers and her father's litigators. And so as long as this keeps getting extended and minutia keeps getting argued about, like all those people keep getting paid, which is to argue against each other from her estate. Britney Spears needs our help. Why is it so hard to get out of? Why is she still in it? This is Rose McGowan saying, free Britney. Wanted to talk about her fans, you know, because the the free Britney stuff is great and all. It's also a little, it's a lot of, it's a lot on her. But the, you included this one clip from a fan, Kevin Wu, that I found intriguing. I think that that story of control and um, identity really resonates. Talk about what what you see that her fans get from her and like why Kevin's comments in particular you wanted was something you wanted to make sure was included. 
And I'm glad Mary made me make that make sense because it made sense in my head, but not until like one of the very final edits did it like I add stuff to make it actually make sense. Oh, <laughs> so I was like, this makes yes. sense. So I'm glad you got it. So it did make sense in the end. Well, it, it's but it's a manifestation of a, a point that Sam knew was important to the film. Yeah. I mean, I think something that surprised me so much because my experience of Brittany was just remembering how she was sold to me when I was a teenager. And I thought, you know, is this like kind of perfect all-American sweetheart? And a lot of the fans, when I started interviewing them and went outside the courthouse, I realized that they were mostly outsiders. There were so many LGBTQ fans, like a lot of the loudest voices in the movement are gay men who were boys growing up with Britney. And a lot of people talk about being bullied as children, as having mental health issues that no one would talk about when they were younger. I think what Kevin describes is, you know, he first was attracted to Britney because she was, you know, this idea of an ideal woman. Wesley Morris, our New York Times critic in the piece, talks about how while adults were kind of shaming her for this sexiness, what he thinks young people saw was a, a power and a control over her space. And that's how attractive that was to these young, a lot of these young gay boys and girls. And so... You know, he, he said at first he, she was like this idealized person he wanted to be like. But then when he found out she wasn't perfect, it made him love her even more. And I think that happened to a lot of these kind of outsider people realizing like, oh, it's okay to not be perfect. You know, because Brittany was constantly rebelling against this idea of being perfect. And she was constantly telling people to be themselves. I think that's something I didn't know about her until I started talking to all these people and realizing like, she really tried to have this message that, like, don't be judgmental, be yourself. And, and I think they also saw her be criticized and shamed for her sexuality as a young person and criticized and shamed for everything else. And it's, you know, people who also experience being criticized for their sexuality or shamed for mental health issues. Right. They're really passionate because they see themselves in her so much. Yeah, I think Britney's story is really resonating with a lot of us now. After a quick break, I want to talk about some of the reaction from women celebrities who face similar misogyny or unwanted attention from the media. That's when we come back on Just Something About Her. We're back on Just Something About Her with two women behind the documentary of the moment framing Britney Spears, Mary Robertson and Samantha Stark. So I read this Vulture article by the writer Catherine uh, Van Arunduk, if I'm saying her name right, which I know, Mary, you said was one of your favorite articles written about the documentary. And it was praising how the film was told in chronological order. I thought one of the most powerful lines in the article was, as much as anything else, Britney's story is about never being the right age to take charge of your own life. A few lines later, she says she gets older, but the media depiction of her somehow goes backward. How much did you think about that style of storytelling and what were you trying to achieve? I could start. We did tell Brittany's story in a largely linear manner. The only exception is really that the beginning opens in the present. And then we begin with Brittany's childhood. Soon after that, we meet her on Star Search as a 10-year-old. We come to understand, I think, through that clip that she had extraordinary talent and that while she was recognized for that talent, she was also asked questions that sexualized her as a 10-year-old by the host of the show at that time. Mm -hmm. 
I noticed last week you had the most adorable, pretty eyes. Do you have a boyfriend? No, sir. Why not? They're mean. It was important to us to begin at the beginning and to walk through time so that the viewer experiences, I think, what is an accretion, a real buildup through time. So you come to understand the cause and effect of it all. You never take her in one moment in isolation. You understand her as someone who has so much promise, so much talent, such an extraordinary voice and so much charisma that her success as a pop star almost felt preordained. And that by the same measure, arguably, the way in which she was then devoured, consumed, and arguably sort of spit out by the culture, I think also starts to feel preordained in a way. It does. And by the time you land in 2008 and you see her entering this conservatorship, you're no longer receiving her at this one moment in time in isolation. You're not receiving her simply as a woman who might have mental health issues, as a woman who some have suggested had substance abuse issues at the time and who therefore, you know, stood to be protected and would benefit from this legal arrangement that allowed some older men to take control of most of her decision making. You can't look at that in isolation. We wanted you to look at Brittany circa the umbrella incident, circa her shaving her head and be unable to separate her experience in that moment from everything that preceded that moment. I think also something surprising that I learned from all the interviews is how much control and power Brittany had as a teenager at the beginning of her career. It's almost like you would expect it to be the other way, right? Like someone starts out as young and they're out of control and then they gain power as they get older. But With Brittany, when you watch her in time, you see, you know, when she was a teenager, she had a lot of control over what her image was. She had control over her artistic decisions. You know, people talk about how creative she was, how she was the boss. The person who was her backup dancer, Kevin Tuncheroen, she hired him to uh, direct her Onyx Hotel tour when he was only 19 years old. And nobody argued with her because she wanted him to do it. And he said it happened within an hour after she decided it because she was the boss then. Seeing that and then watching as she ages, her power gets uh, becomes less and less, I think also is so meaningful to watch. Do you guys think about Taylor Swift? I look at her trajectory and it seems, and particularly Samantha, you know, jumping off of what you said about how Brittany had a lot of control early on. My impression is Taylor Swift did not have a lot of control early on. Scooter Braun, other people owed her own her music, right? And then as she got older, she has asserted more control. Where this week she released an anthology of songs that were taken away from her and she's done them new. She said them her own way and now she owns her music. I think social media probably helped Taylor Swift have her own platforms so that she's not so reliant on the press to be some kind of filter for her. You know, I feel like that shows some progress, at least in terms of owning her own music and her own voice and being very much, it seems, in control of her career. I have been thinking a lot about Taylor Swift. I first started thinking about her because our director of photography, Emily Topper, was actually the director of photography on Taylor Swift's documentary, which I don't know if you've seen it, but it it put her in a whole different light for me. I I loved that. And So I do think it's progress. I also think that people belittle Taylor Swift all the time and don't take her seriously because she's, oh, she's just this pretty little thing. Like, come on. It's so cute to watch her try to take control. Right. 
people still don't take her seriously, but she takes herself very seriously and she puts herself out there as a serious artist and, you know, does these interesting collaborations and demands respect. And she's gaining that, I think, by doing it herself. It's been interesting to see other names pop up on Twitter and in social media as people reflect back upon the ways in which they treated not only Brittany, but her contemporaries. Janet Jackson is one name that comes up time and again. Yeah. And I, I can't claim to know every facet of her story, hardly. But I think it's, you know, important for us as a culture to scrutinize not only the ways that we're treating the young, attractive white women of the world like Brittany, but the ways in which, you know, women of color who existed as celebrities in the early 90s were perhaps, perhaps doubly punished for their presentation. Right. Boy, Justin Timberlake's having a bad week. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, actually. I'm surprised that people picked that out. Really? It was, not, it was such a small part of the film. It was a small part of the film, but he's a big figure. Yeah. I think people almost put chapters on Britney's life based on her boyfriends and husbands. And so we didn't want to do that. So we very much like gave the husbands and boyfriends very little screen time. But I guess his it did speak to people the footage that we played from him. You know, people keep asking, did we ask Justin Timberlake for comment? But I think it's like, we just played his footage. He commented in the footage. We play a lot of different archival footage to remind you of what has been captured on film. So you can look at it differently now. And people are just looking at it differently now. Like you saw that back then too. Justin Timberlake is in the house. And I just want to ask you one question. Did you Britney Spears? <laughs> yes or no? Oh, man. Come on, man. Okay, I did it. No, yeah! Just echoing what Sam said, we went back and forth in the edit on the Justin Timberlake section. It was longer, it was shorter, it was shorter, it was longer, as is the case, you know, with the edit process generally. And I think after we condensed the section significantly and we were wondering, would the audience, you know, fully understand the way in which he attempted to and arguably successfully controlled the narrative around their breakup. Would that right. cut through? And apparently it did cut through. <laughs> the response has been really intense. Because <laughs> every woman knows some jackass guy like that. That's why. But but it's not just him. It's the entire industry that enabled that to happen. Like that yes, narrative would not is. have happened if all the writers of the magazines and the editors and the people making the covers of the magazines didn't also put like put their spin on it. And and his music video where he's essentially stalking Britney and watching her in the shower and leaving a sex tape of himself with another woman playing in her apartment as he leaves, um, that music video would not have happened if it wasn't for so many people. Like how many people did that have to go through to get to the air? And everyone remembers that like, isn't that the music video where Britney cheated on Justin? But that doesn't happen in the music video. In the music video, he stalks a Britney lookalike and watches her shower. So we have revisionist history also. You were my son. You were my yeah, it's also heartbreaking to hear her reaction to that video in the Diane Sawyer interview. You can tell she's shocked and hurt and just doesn't want to talk about it. I was on vacation and uh, someone called me and told me that it was going to come on and I watched it and I was just like, I was kind of in denial. Like I went in this whole denial phase or whatever, but it's it's fine. That's the way he, 
I don't want to judge him or anything like that, because that's the way he had to deal with what happened, and, you know, and that's fine, but I just, I know that if I was in a relationship and something happened, I, I just, I couldn't really go there, but it's all good. Let's talk about something else. We show briefly a headline that I am paraphrasing. This is not an exact quote, but it was a picture of Justin Timberlake on the cover, and it said in brief something along the lines of, you know, we forgive him his wussy music because he got in Britney's pants. Paraphrasing, paraphrasing. Yes. But we can, yeah, yeah, we can yeah, look no, at the Yeah, no, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, good for you, guy. Right. That's the same thing. Like, everybody knows a, like a jackass like that from high school. What about the other reactions that you've seen from women like Sarah Jessica Parker? And I saw Sandra Bernhard tweet about the, you know, but it, you know, it's sort of revealing when these women celebrities raise their hand to say, me too. And not only women celebrities, but I was noting that there were a lot of women who were incredibly famous in the 90s and the early aughts who tweeted in support of the film or in Free Britney in the days after the film was released, including Sarah mm-hmm. Jessica Parker, Haley yeah. from Paramore, Liz Fair, you know, and Miley Cyrus, of course, also said, we love you, Britney, in her Super Bowl pre-show on Sunday. It, it made me wonder what else they have to say. I would right. love to have that conversation with Sarah Jessica Parker in which she reflects upon you know, the way in which she was presented and treated in the 90s and aughts, and perhaps what the film has stimulated, but more generally that Courtney Love is another one. You know, I'm ready to hear their stories, and I'm ready for us to understand their stories in a more complete way. Courtney Love, this is how Courtney was treated. Kurt Cobain's a genius. She's a wreck. She's crazy. He must have written her songs, because like, we're always looking for the man behind the genius in a woman's work. Yeah. Talk about a six-hour episode. Courtney deserves that. I mean, Liz Fair and Courtney. You know, Sam came up with the title framing Britney Spears, which I think is brilliant. It is genius. It <laughs> is genius. genius. Oh, you it mean a man didn't come up with that title? I was going to ask that. No. <laughs> yeah. And there was, but I love that everyone accepted it. Like no one tried to change it, which was so it's great. Because I just started putting it on top of the papers like in July. Because I was like, this is our title. It's a power move. You control the paper, you control the outcome. It's a total power move. Yeah. <laughs> Like, I am ready to see framing Courtney Love. I am ready to see framing, you know, Janet Jackson. I'm ready to see framing Anna Nicole Smith. I'm I'm ready for us to build upon the power of this one example with Britney Spears with other examples. Uh, I need to let you all go, but I just have, so one more question. Um, Sari is very insistent that I ask you what your favorite Britney songs are. Can I hijack the question for one to take it in a totally different place, which is just, yes, there is, is one clip question. that I, I would love to work questions? into one of these interviews. <laughs> Please. So Samantha will remember that we had earlier versions in which we had included coverage of the moment in which Brittany, not long after having had a baby, was photographed out at night without her underwear on. And this image was widely consumed and widely distributed, and she was roundly criticized for going out without her underwear on. And nowhere, we looked, nowhere was there criticism of the action of taking a photograph of a woman's genital area. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I think it's really, uh, I guess, comment upon the volume of material that that we found that was as telling as that moment that we didn't have space for that in the film. (laughs) Speaking of timelines, chronology, the cherry on top of that is that was six weeks after she gave birth also. Oh my God. 
just putting that out there. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, it is, it is remarkable. Any favorite Britney songs to close us with? Did you listen to her music a lot when you were doing this movie? Yes. Oh my gosh. I have, that's all I've listened to on repeat over and over. And I like basically like the theme of what was going on was this. I would listen to songs over and over a lot. I started with Glory, her latest album, because oh. fans told me that Glory and Blackout, the album she made in 2007, are the two that she had the most control over or that she has said have, have reflected her the most and that she felt the most creative in. Man on the Moon. I started listening to Blackout after that as we were getting more and more into the misogyny and that's her 2007 album. I mean, the song Give Me More. It's Britney, bitch. I just listened to that so much because she's literally saying, everyone wants more from me. Give me more, <laughs> give me more. It's like sometimes these songs are right. just so, like, she's actually saying what literally what is happening but you're it's but no one's listening to it yeah it's not as complicated what about you mary well you know i think oops i did it again is totally infectious and it's a confection and we had another clip that we had to cut out from Dave Holmes, who of course was on MTV at the time, and he said, I remember hearing Oops, I Did It Again in a club for the first time. And the, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, and the room was throbbing and dancing to it. And he said, I had never been happier in my life. <laughs> like, like, you know, that is a gift to the world to be able to create like a delicious confection that is consumed by many and, you know, will bring a smile to your face. <laughs> that is a gift. I'm so uh, grateful to both of you uh, for coming on and for making this film and so excited for all of its success and like how much people are getting out of it. You know, this is just filmmaking at its best. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Sari, you there? Yes, I am. So much to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Where would you like to start? With um, right after this recording, Justin Timberlake came out with an apology that is a, like a lot of apologies for men, a non-apology apology. And what makes me crazy about his kind of apology where I think he ends with something like he needs to do better and he will do better. It's like, how hard is it, Justin, to not be a misogynistic jackass? Right. If it requires real effort on your part to do better what you're suggesting to me is that like the bad behavior is still continuing and that your natural state of being is to like default to misogyny. And like, I don't think that's what's happening here. But really, when you put up all of these things like I failed and I need to do better and I will do better, you're circling around owning your behavior, but you're not really doing it. And you're sort of suggesting to men everywhere that this is like a hard thing. And it's not a hard thing. <laughs> It's not a hundred percent. It's not a hard yeah. thing to not talk smack about your ex-girlfriend. So it just uh, makes me crazy. Yeah. I applaud him for 
calling out the fact that he has benefited. This is a direct quote. He has right. benefited from a system that condones misogyny and racism because he was also referring to how he treated Janet Jackson also. So I commend him for calling that out. Right. And that Janet Jackson, like, got, you know, Janet Jackson's career, like, tanked after she had that wardrobe malfunction. And he, the guy that, like, ripped it off, right. like, did not at all. Yeah. And let's not forget, she did nothing wrong. He was the one that ripped off her clothing and she was the one that faced the consequences. She was banned from performing at the Grammys that year while Justin Timberlake performed at the Grammys that year and then was later given a Super Bowl halftime show of his own. So, like, I do commend him partially for calling out that there's a larger issue here. But again, that's a non-apology apology apology, um, because he's saying, you know, this is part of the culture and I'm just a product of that. And just the fact that, you know, he had to do this as a PR thing as well. Like he admitted that he saw all the messages and tags and comments and everyone calling him out for it, saying, quote, I feel compelled to respond. So too little, too late. Yeah. You know, I saw over the weekend after we did this interview, it trending a David Letterman interview with Lindsay Lohan that was like really distressing. Aren't you supposed to be in rehab now? Do you not watch anything that goes on? I do. Lindsay Lohan needs this too. When you go to the rehab, what do they do? Let's, let's, this is, we have to, we're here for a movie. We have to what? Let's stay on the positive. Our attitudes are changing. We're more aware. We're going back and looking at the way women were treated before and we're doing better now. Meanwhile, like social media and women having their own voices has, I think that it's really done a lot. Yeah, I think it's super important that women can tell their own stories through social media and that they're not relying on paparazzi or as you talked about in the interview, the male gaze. So men controlling the lens in which they are shown to the rest of the world. Obviously, the internet does open them up to a whole new world of criticism, misogyny, attacks, and we're still trying to figure out how that factors in. But I do think that just having that agency is super important. That encourages me. All right. Well, this was awesome. I'm so glad. This we had is them awesome. Yeah. So glad we had them. Yeah. So excited for them too. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Mary Robertson and Samantha Stark for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineer this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 